Mindset Podcast. We are your guide as you make your way through life, getting better 1% every day. We believe that life is lived and true victory won through adversity. Nothing easy is ever worth it. We believe in the warrior ethos and support those that choose to walk that path. Resiliency. What is it? What is it to you? Do you have it? Do you seek it? Do you see it in others or do you see the lack of it in others? I want to go through that today. Welcome to the Warrior Mindset podcast. Um, thanks for joining me. I know that your time is valuable. And so I'm going to do my best every time try to give you something useful in your own path. All right, so this is a great article that I found. Moral distress. The powerlessness you feel is called moral distress and how to cultivate more resilience instead. A lot of the subject matter on this blog um is often more about, uh, you know, a, a topic of, like, grit. Okay? So the physical side, right? Um, you know, we do a lot of workouts and tough things and fight a lot of fights. You know, if you... If you <sighs> If you're lucky or unlucky enough <laughs> to run your own business for any amount of time, you need a lot of grit. You need a lot of grit to just survive in this world in general. Uh, you know, it feels like feels like people are out to get you. You know, we're um, just this is just the way the universe is. So, what is grit? It's a great post here put out um, by Brooke Entz. Um, She's a fairly well-known CrossFitter, but uh, followed her for a long time. The drive, stamina, and fortitude to push through any challenge or obstacle until success is achieved. And now that's legit. And we all need that. We all need that grit. We all need that resilience, personal resilience. You know, what, what makes you get up in the morning um, what makes you push through a tough workout or achieve that black belt goal or, uh, you know, what is your why? But, you know, anymore, we're facing sort of a different type of need for a different type of resilience. And this is a great article about um, moral distress. And I just want to kind of go through it and see if it touches on where you might be and maybe it'll help you. You know, it would be great if everything were black and white, right? Right or wrong. But it it's often not. And what happens, like, like it's really easy to choose from good and evil right? That's, that's an easy choice. You don't need a lot of resilience or grit. 
You don't need to be a good guy to choose between good and evil. Right? I mean, evil's evil's what it is. But what happens when the the evil is unavoidable or when you can't stop it, when you can't stop seeing it or you're powerless to prevent it or when you know speaking up or speaking out against something you consider evil is um, not the right course of action because it's a direct threat to us or what happens when life uh, forces you to choose between two two bad situations right where either either choice compromises your core values or your obligations and commitments how do you let the wrong how do you let the evil live inside of you right so that's the concept of moral distress um so like we are faced with today, right? Here's some examples that the article gives. Parents caught between homeschooling and sending their children to in-person classes, right? And I'm not talking about the age-old discussion of homeschooling. I'm talking about right now with uh, the state of the world and the pandemic. Or maybe your values are in direct conflict with state and federal safety guidelines, a.k.a. wearing a mask. Small businesses, like restaurants and, and gyms, like I own a gym, getting hit and having to close your doors, even though you have responsibility to employees and your own families. Uh, people who are or desperate to spend time with their their family, that maybe their older parents, but they really shouldn't because their older parents might be exposed to um, what we're dealing with. Maybe you're caught in the middle of sociocultural grievances or injustices, and you also carry the sense that nothing's ever going to change. When you feel like None of your values are respected individually or collectively as your, of your group. So powerlessness is at the heart of moral distress, right? It is that feeling of powerlessness. That's what derives moral distress. The feeling that you have to or must seriously compromise yourself or something you hold dear due to external forces that are beyond your control or feel beyond your control. Or the feeling that others don't understand the moral significance or moral imperative that is clear to you. Moral distress is what results from repeatedly not having your values respected, either individually or collectively. You have the feeling of being muzzled, restricted, devalued, unheard, dismissed. Right? It's easy, in that sense, to become fueled with anger and distrust, fear, frustration. And then over time, 
over time, emotions such as those uh, build anxiety, uh, mental, spiritual, uh, emotional depletion, depression. <sighs> that sucks. And, you know, it's easy to see something like that when we think of, uh, like, healthcare workers, right, during, like, during this pandemic. All of this stuff kind of goes beyond that, but um, it's, it's what we're, it's, you know, it's what's very much top of mind because it's where we are. But um, it's easy to see this in uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, healthcare worker. There's going to be long-term damaging effects on their psyche, on their uh, sense of moral distress. There already is. I mean, we've all seen the pictures. It's like row, row of faces where they take their mask off and it's like bruised or, you know, seriously chafed or like it's just terrible. Um, and and then if you think further, what what is this having? What effect is this having on their personal relationships? I mean, I bet it's killing them. How do you carry it? Right? Um, There is a physiological reaction, right? Uh, According to the article, and you can look this up elsewhere too, um, humans are hardwired to detect and respond to threat, right? Like physical threat and even psychological threat can even activate the nervous system, you know. They call it the lizard brain, right? Like, uh, you know, if you are walking along a walking trail and you see a, uh, I don't know, a wild dog, coyote or whatever, or, you know, a stranger that looks suspicious, you're going to get that chill feeling, right? You're going to get that feeling. Your nervous system is being activated. Your fight or flight is being activated. That can also happen um, not just by identifying physical threats, but also psychological, existential, or uh, metaphysical almost sometimes. Um, Like, for example, let's say you're about to give a speech in front of 100 people. Your lizard brain, your response brain, your threat detection part of your brain is, is still being activated. You go on high alert. When this happens, all those chemicals or, or whatever, I'm not a scientist, not a doctor, but I know this to be fact, get released into your body, your system. I mean, they create real physical, emotional, cognitive changes, right? Your heart rate increases. Your blood pressure goes up. You become activated. Your pupils dilate sometimes. You become more aware of your environment. Maybe time seems to slow down. But also, your emotional system is taxed, right? As your attention narrows and becomes uh, biased, to identifying threats, 
your capacity for empathy lessens. Right? We rely more on instinctual defensive behaviors. Right? And it, it can be just like the physiological, you know, emotional or whatever, can be into one of those two sections, fight or flight. And we can do, we can, that can uh, express itself like physically, right? You fight or you run, right? You, you, you queue up to do those physical defensive things or you run away, whatever. But it also happens emotionally, right? Um, and this is where, um, you know, we begin to become distanced from people. We become distracted, we, we go in a sense of denial, um, begin to disassociate from things that cause us stress. We rationalize. That's definite dysregulation. And over an extended period of time, I believe that can have serious long-term effect. And according to the article, it can, I mean, whereas continuing to be in that heightened physiological state, we can damage our, our tissues and our nervous system, right? You know, emotionally, you can carry those, that weight. Um, if you look it up, the crescendo effect. which is much like having a high fatty diet can begin to slow down your blood uh, flow and your arteries cause issues. It can also happen uh, emotionally and morally and spiritually. So, enter resilience. Resilience, generally speaking, is your ability to recover or adapt well to stress, adversity, or trauma. It ensures that change and challenge improve rather than hurt our lives, fortifies rather than weakens our spirit. Resilience helps us see that difficulties need not leave us eternally damaged or temporarily only temporarily challenged. So this concept of, you know, physical resilience, it's pretty common one here on the show. Um, we dig into that a lot. We carry that a lot. So, you know, it's a pretty base form of training that I personally participate in. A lot of people do. You know, the martial arts are built within it. A lot of the, you know, military training and the elite levels and elite levels of athletics um, openly accept tough physical challenges and typically identify those things as something that, you know, overcoming helps improve you. You know, that old saying, no pain, no gain. 
it, it has meaning to us. But we don't really apply that to uh, our emotional state necessarily, not all the time. I mean, it's one of Mark Devine's, Coach Devine's five mountains. Physical, emotional, spiritual. Right? Then your ability to adapt and then also, you know, your warrior spirit putting it all together. Emotional resilience is one of the five mountains. It's the second. You know, it's part of the fat part of the the success pyramid. Um So, do you ever apply some of the same things that maybe, maybe if you're a martial artist, do you ever apply some of those same things to your emotional, your moral capabilities? You know, it's easy to go in the gym and lift weights, or it's easy to go run faster, practice more martial art, but do you practice the things that improve your moral resilience, your emotional resilience? Because the moral domain is connected with all the dimensions of you being a pure human, right? It even touches on the physical, the biological physical, the cognitive, spiritual, and relational aspects help make us a whole. So, you know, 2020 was hard and 2021 is not letting up. You know? So, according to the article, which has some great points, what are some of the ways, what are some practices that can help you improve your moral resiliency? Self mastery, the art of learning to self regulate. Self-mastery is being in command of yourself, body, mind, spirit. Mind, spirit, body. Even acknowledging and accepting at the same time that we cannot control our environment. We cannot control the world, right? Self-mastery is a path of learning how to struggle well. Turning your attention inward. Being mindful. And what does that mean? So it means through whatever whatever means that you need. Um, some people meditate. Uh, some people like to practice the physical resilience aspect of training, physical training. Maybe some people like to go on a long run or whatever. But it is doing something that lets you get to the heart of what might be fueling your feelings. Not just being mindful of your feelings, but working on whatever plane you need to work on that helps you see why you're having those feelings. So first, yes, be mindful of your feelings. But also, and the point being 
to find out what's causing those thoughts and actions. It's not about killing or squashing unpleasantries, right? Or because you're having an emotion, maybe you're feeling sad about something. It doesn't mean to judge it as being wrong or weak. It's about understanding why you're having that. That's self-mastery. The article talks about staying in your window of tolerance, right? I've heard people say like, man, I'm cool until somebody pushes me too far. But like, how far is too far? My too far might not be the same as your too far. But have you defined it? Do you work to push it farther or contract it? Um, self-awareness. So, uh, I'll read directly. Rushton says that moral resilience is grounded in moral conscientiousness. It reflects a vigilance to live in ways to live in ways that are aligned with who we are and what we stand for in the midst of situations that appear to be incommensurate with integrity. Like some, some of these guys write so, so smart. Um, so it's like uh, self-awareness, okay? So this, this angle is working to always be in command of yourself, right? Working to always, living by your own personal doctrine, working to always do the things you said you would do, right? It's being aware of it and putting it on the forefront. Self-mastery is the present focused realization that we can always be in command of ourselves, mind, spirit, body, even while accepting that we may not be able to control all situations and outcomes. Knowing that you should be in control of your own mind, knowing that you should work to be aware of your own thoughts and feelings in your own mind is one thing. But working to actually do it is self-mastery. And there's no shortcut. There's no, you know, ABC list. It's always different for everybody. And that's where the self-mastery comes in. It's the commitment to yourself to work on it. Next, self-expression. Choose and contribute in ethically clear and competent ways. This one, this one's good. I think that to truly express yourself in these ways of self-mastery and self-awareness, right? Practicing there and getting there 
and then being able to express yourself to others from that plane, from that point of view, will give you more of the moral resilience to then do more. (laughs) It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Developing moral ethical competence and then speaking with clarity and confidence about it furthers you down the line. But also, there are ways to practice this. Um, For example, uh, speaking with clarity and confidence also includes knowing when to excuse ourselves from a situation, system, or relationship, whether it be for a short time or else permanently, because that situation could reparably harm our conscious. So, like, you know, if someone's super negative and you're getting bummed out by it, it's okay to take a break from that person. Or being aware of a habit that you've created that is causing you distress in some way being aware of it enough to take a break from it. And then meaning making. Don't demand it, create it. Meaning making is the process of how we perceive, interpret, and make sense of events in life, relationships, and ourselves. So, you know, it's not just shut up and take it, suffer in silence. You know, if we're not applying these things to what we're going through, um, you know, we're not going to get anything from it. So I'll read from the thing. Senseless suffering is a big theme in moral resilience. We often think to ourselves, why am I continuing to do this when nothing changes? Or I'm doing everything I can to make things better, but nothing I ever do is enough. So, you can either let that fuel the dead-end, stuff's-never-going-to-change story that you're telling yourself, or you can use it to fuel a solid foundation for doing something, creating something. Demanding it of others. Right. But I think this one, a lot of people want to skip to. And so their actions or their complaints or whatever are empty. Or the interpretation of others is that what you're doing is empty. So Meaning-making is not just trying to put a happy spin on pain and suffering. Nor is it trying to teach us cautionary tales. Like, it's not always a moral to the story type of situation. What it does is it just keeps us moving forward. And 
And the final one, connectedness, engaging with others. So, this one, you, you need to cultivate that small group of friends. And I mean friends, not acquaintances. Because reaching out and talking with others who aren't going to judge you, who that you trust, and who when you need it will give you empathy and compassion and even brutal honesty if it's needed, right, without any personal agenda on their side. It's important. And even if it's just one person, but you must engage with others on whatever level that you're comfortable. Because nothing like, there's nothing like a feeling of like powerlessness or hopelessness or helplessness to make you feel alone, right? And that is often when our moral distress level goes off the charts when we, when we feel really alone. super important okay I don't I don't know um, I don't know if that helps but I like this article and so one other thing that I think is really leading to a lot of our moral distress and feelings of powerlessness is this idea of a echo chamber and I think that we just live in it. And this is not me sitting here railing against uh, Facebook and Instagram or whatever. Big tech, I think, is what one of the terms, one of the sides calls it. I don't really give a crap. What I do care about is that you don't stay in it. And this isn't also about listening to the other side if I were, you could see my air quotes I would say enemies and air quotes um, it's not about just giving them a voice and listening to them because like you should nah I mean if you know if you know what is being said or done is not right if you know that it goes against you morally ethically or what you believe to be moral or ethical injustice you don't have to listen to it. You don't have to try to empathize with it. That's not what I'm talking about. And I think that's where most people's brains go. It's a cool article from Wired, Wired Magazine, How to Break Out of Your Social Media Echo Chamber. And so what we're talking about is confirmation bias paired with these social media platforms, um, algorithms to serve you up content. There's a great show on Netflix, Social Dilemma. You should go watch that. It kind of scare you, scare you. But this little post gives you actionable steps uh, if you are self-aware enough, sort of like a step-by-step guide, to break you out of that little personal echo chamber that your Facebook feed you find yourself in so one like everything 
Algorithms can't categorize you if they can't determine what you really like. Be generous and you'll be rewarded with something beyond grateful friends who are glad you noticed their posts, right? Just like everything. <laughs> I mean, it's literally, um, they are playing on your uh, own ego. They're playing on your own um, inability to let go of your self-assigned value to your like. Like, you assign personal value personal currency to that like or the heart or whatever it is and we give it to people but it's not really giving we feel as though we're exchanging it to people it may not be just on the surface but that's really what's happening there's there's a social um and egotistical and emotional value that you assign to liking something that someone puts out you're not just necessarily saying I approve of this content you're also saying I approve of you posting this content so turn that off that's you are you are putting that on the system turn that off and I mean in your own brain and just like everything that's what he's saying here break the algorithm break that break that game that they're using actively cultivate prestige media on all sides Mm. Swallow your preconceived opinions and follow prestige publications across the political spectrum. A profile searching for the National Review and the New Yorker means you'll keep your newsfeed clear of the most polarizing stories. So, if you are left-leaning and everything that you um, follow is there and you actively um, dump the other stuff, well, then they have categorized you. Again, do you go there to feel good? Do you go to your Facebook feed to feel good about the world, or do you go there to try to see actual things, actual things happening, actual news or whatever? One might argue that that's not the best place to go, but you are creating that echo chamber of only being in one dimension if that's all that you like and follow. Pay attention to the amount of followers the people you follow have. Research shows that individuals who have a large disparity in their follower-following ratio tend to acquire outsized influence. Be cognizant of these accounts and don't be afraid to mute them. Right? That's pretty self-explanatory. Just look at that ratio. And you can tell if it's bullshit or not. Number four, change feeds to focus on recency rather than personalization. Platforms tend to bury this feature in the settings, but changing it is worth the effort. Doing so takes back some power from the algorithm and might show you posts from accounts you haven't seen in years. Right, So, don't follow things or don't set your sorting preferences in whatever you're using based on things that you like, but simply go by the most recent information, numerical, date. You're removing the bias because, you know, numerical order and date is not a bias. Five. 
create space for new voices. To really start to see changes in your feed, consider temporarily muting celebrities whose accounts share your perspective to allow different voices to appear. So, again, if you are only following famous people that have the same perceived thoughts and emotions that you do, then guess what? That's literally being in a bubble. So, I think this is a tactical thing that you can begin to apply some of these things to help build your uh, moral resilience or to affect the intake, your intake of information that can help you build a little more resiliency, moral resiliency. All right. I hope this helped. Um, I don't know that it did, <laughs> but um, I would love to, call, to continue this conversation with someone who's interested about um, building resiliency in themselves or moral distress or even grit. So what does it mean to you? Was all that BS or do you see something in there? Let me know. Until next time, folks, get after it. Get after it.